Welcome to the Exchange Church Podcast. Feel free to join us live on Facebook every Sunday at 10 a.m. at facebook.com slash exchangechurch. The following message is brought to you by our lead pastor, Pastor Jared Brooks. Come on, one more time. Let's give our worship team a big round of applause. Wow. So good. So good. Uh, you know, I've, I've been able to travel a lot of places and preach in a lot of places. And I've got to be honest with you. One of the hardest times to preach is in a church that the band is really, really rough. <laughs> you laugh, but I'm being dead serious. I, I preached at a church one time. We're in the middle of the second song, and we're talking, this church had 800 people there in the first service, and the second service had 1,500 people, and then the first service, this pastor from Africa, and this was in Chicago, he looks at me, and he says, Pastor Jared, you can play the drums, because their drummer was bad, and he asked me to get up on stage in the middle of service and take the drummer's place. <sighs> Listen. Today we're wrapping up the last part of uh, Irresistible. It's really supposed to be a six-part series. We, we did this last time. We just got to the end, and we were like, man, we got to keep going. This is just so good. The, the meat in this series is so good. And so today we're going to close it out. And this is part number eight, and it's so powerful when you go back and you look and you understand the new covenant. You understand what Jesus, when Jesus came to this earth, what he unleashed for the whole world, how powerful it was, what he established. And what's great is that you and I get to participate in what God is doing. The, the thing that's really amazing about this whole series, you know, we talked about irresistible. Why has it become, why has Jesus become so resistible to people? Because at one point he wasn't. Why has the church, the movement, become so resistible to people because at one point in history, it wasn't resistible. It was irresistible. Process and what God has done, what Jesus established, hey, we are important players in the big picture of things. The church is still a force to be reckoned with. Can I say that again? Amen. Uh, now, the church a long time ago was absolutely irresistible and did unbelievable things. The church was unstoppable. Today, the church still is powerful. It's a powerful force and should be still unstoppable. But to be honest, and if you know this, the church over uh, time has slowly begun to veer off track. And it's become very political. It's become very, it's become very uh, 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 conviction-oriented, my, my convictions and my interpretations, and, and somehow we steered away, not we, but the church as a whole, steered away from the original purpose of what Jesus came to establish for the earth. But just know that the church today is still remarkable, and it's supposed to be remarkable, and you are supposed to play a part of that, and I'm going to prove it to you today. So, I did this a few years ago, and it, I, I just really enjoyed it so much. So I'm going to try it again today, but we're going to do a little bit of time travel. So we're going to go back. We're going to jump into a time machine, not a DeLorean, because I'm inviting you and five of your closest friends. We wouldn't fit in a DeLorean. We would fit in an Astro minivan. Okay? So we're going to take an Astro minivan, me and you and five of your closest friends. So right now, just imagine who you would take. Okay, and so we're going to travel back in time, and we're going to a very specific time period, and I want you all to log this in in your brain and think about it, but we're going back to the year A.D. 82, okay, A.D. 82, and it's very important. Now, we show up in 82 A.D., and people are staring for obvious reasons. We look different. Now, on my trip, my imaginary trip, I take my wife with me, and on this trip, she has holes in her jeans because she always wears holy jeans, and so everybody's trying to fix her jeans. All these women are coming up to her with needles and thread and trying to patch her jeans, so whatever your imaginary trip looks like, we travel back in time. Everybody's looking at us. Everybody's staring at us. It's really awkward, and when we get back to this time period, we go back to Rome, 
the city of Rome, and the emperor during this time is Domitian. Everybody say Domitian. Okay? Domitian is the emperor. Now, some of you may remember that name because he is in some of our world history books. He is noted for a few things, and we'll talk about that in a little bit. But this is a, a, a famous person in history. Well, kind of. He's logged into history. I wouldn't call him famous. But he was an emperor uh, back in the days. Now, let me see if I can paint you a picture. Now, at this, at just a few years before this, Nero was the emperor of Rome. Nero sent the general Vespasian into Judea and Jerusalem, into that area, to stomp out, to stamp out the Jewish rebellion, okay? They were trying to stomp out the Jewish rebellion, put an end to it. So uh, Nero sends Vespasian. Vespasian, uh, Nero ends up getting assassinated in Rome. So Vespasian leaves there, goes back one of his two come the emperor. So Vespasian leaves in his place one of his two sons, Titus. His other son is Domitian. So Titus stays there. Now, this is really important, especially in Christian history, because Mark documents it, Matthew documents it, Daniel documents it a lot, what happens in 70 AD. But Titus puts an end to the Jewish rebellion. If you've ever heard of the abomination of desolation, this is what happens. And Titus is the one who does that. Titus, eventually, when he, he goes in, he breaks down the walls in Jerusalem. He busts into the temple. They loot. They plunder everything out of the temple. They steal everything that they can, anything of value. And Scripture tells us, Jesus even predicted this, that there was a day going to come that not one stone would be left standing. And that's what Titus did. Titus took the Roman army in, and they destroyed everything. When they finished doing all that, they made their way back to Rome. Vespasian ends up dying, so Titus becomes emperor in place of his father. Titus is only emperor for a couple of years, and then he dies, and his brother Domitian, 82 AD. So when we show up, Domitian is now the emperor. Word travels fast about time travelers. If you can only imagine, rumors spread like crazy throughout the city that there were seven time travelers back from the future here to visit. And so Domitian, he gets word out to one of his messengers and they come and they find us and they tell us, hey, Emperor Domitian wants you to come to a party tonight at the Colosseum. He has personally invited you to this party. It's the end of 100 days of games in Rome. Uh, and so this, at the end, they have these big celebrations every single night. And so this is one of those celebrations. So the, the messenger tells us that, and the messenger says, here, I will take you to the Colosseum. So he begins to lead us through the Roman Forum into the, towards the Colosseum. And as we get closer to the Colosseum, we pass directly under the archway of Titus. It was just recently built, Okay. It was commemorating and, and documenting, basically, the victory that Titus had over the Jews just in 70 A.D. Domitian had this built in honor of that victory for his brother. It was beautiful. It was brand new when we got there. We walked through, and it's unbelievable. And as you look up, into the archway, you notice all of this beautiful art and etchings and people. And, and, and you, we ask the guy, what is this people? And, and they begin to tell us, well, this is when we took everything out of the temple in Jerusalem. We took all the treasures and all the gold, and Titus led us into this monstrous victory over the Jews. And we plundered everything and destroyed the temple, and we won. We killed millions of Jews. That's what it was representing. We walked through there seeing this, and we head on to the Colosseum. And as we get closer to the Colosseum, we eventually are escorted through the VIP gate of the Roman Colosseum. We walk through the gate, and immediately we are greeted by hundreds and hundreds of people. 
There's a large patio in this Colosseum. Everybody is there. They're uh, and seated in the middle of this is in a temporary throne is the emperor himself, Domitian, who stands and greets us. We walk in, and he's surrounded, of course, by his Victorian guard, all wearing their purple. It's a lavish meal with very unfamiliar foods. Very exotic meats, exotic fruits, lots of eggs, and enough wine to float a ship. So you sit down at the table and you ask for water. I remind you that drinking the water there will probably kill you. So when in Rome, that was supposed to be a joke, but I'm going to write that down. Did not laugh at joke. So we sat down and... And we're watching, and you don't speak the language. You don't understand Latin, and so you're looking around the room. You're trying to read people's body language, and we're in awe. Because, I mean, you want to talk culture shock galore. It's right here. Unbelievable. I mean, we have stepped back to 82 AD. We're just looking around, taking it all in. And all of a sudden, we realize something. Through the course of time travel, of understanding Fluently. I developed the gift of understanding fluently Latin. It's my miracle. This is my story, so let me go there, okay? All of a sudden, I understand Latin fluently. And and so we're sitting there, and we're sitting at the table, and the messenger comes up with a message, and he leans to the table, and he says, the emperor would like you to stand, and he would like you to give a report on the future. He wants to know what the state is of the Roman Empire, the Roman Empire in the 21st century, where you come from. Okay. So as I stand up, you look at me wondering what's going on, what's happening. I look at you wondering what I should say, because if I don't get this right, we could all become a part of the gore on the Colosseum floor. You know what I'm saying? I mean, this is really dangerous territory, what he's asking. And so I, I stand up with my fluent Latin, and I begin to speak. And I say, Your Excellency, to understand the future of Rome, I must first rehearse a bit of recent history. So I'm setting them up here. On our way to the Colosseum, we pass through the archway of Titus celebrating your brother's victory over the Jewish rebellion. And while, while it's true that your armies walked in and, and just ransacked the whole city and, and destroyed the Jewish temple, decimated the temple, killed just millions of people, while that's all true, the God of the Jews, he escaped unscathed. As difficult as this is going to be for you to believe, eventually Rome... The empire will embrace the Jewish God as their God. When I say that, people just start to whisper. Eventually, Rome will come to understand and accept that the Roman gods in which you serve now, they're actually not even gods at all. I mean, whisper, people just start whispering. Domitian raises his hand, they all silence. A future emperor will actually oversee the destruction of all of your temples to other gods. A future Roman emperor will eventually oversee disbanding the priesthood and make it against the law to even sacrifice an animal to any of those gods. Wow. When I say that, the crowd erupts. I mean, people start talking. It gets so loud in there. Everybody's talking. Everybody's wondering what's going on. You're looking at me going, what did you say? What did you say? Because everybody's just losing their mind. All of a sudden, Emperor Domitian raises his hand. He silences the people, and he asks me one question. How can this be? How can this be? So I say, Emperor Domitian, in order to understand that, I have to take you back 50 more years because it's really, really powerful. During the reign of Tiberius Caesar in the land, in the land of Judea, a man came out of the wilderness named John, and he proclaimed 
that the Jewish God was about to do something in the world for the entire world. He was an unseemly character. He attracted large, large crowds everywhere he went. In fact, it, it was crazy. As I'm speaking to you, Mr. Uh, Emperor Domitian, I see Josephus sitting here in the crowd. Where I come from in the 21st century, Josephus is a famous historian. Josephus can confirm everything I'm saying about John because he wrote a lot about John. Josephus is back in the corner. He's going, yeah, it's true, I did. Eventually, John got sideways with Herod Antipas, the son of Herod the Great. And Herod Antipas had him beheaded. But before he was beheaded, John the Baptist would announce that one was coming after him that was greater than him. And the leaders in Judea wondered if maybe John was the Messiah. They had been waiting and anticipating. Eventually, one day, the prophecies would come true that the Messiah would actually show up. And they started wondering if, if John was the Messiah. And people started saying, John must be the Messiah. And John finally proclaimed adamantly, I am not the Messiah, but there's one coming after me. Whoo! You better listen to what he says. And sure enough, just before, and appears on the banks of the Jordan River. He began to preach and speak like no one has ever preached and spoken before. He announced a brand new kingdom. He announced a kingdom that was not of this world, but a kingdom that was for the entire world. A kingdom that was going to touch down in this world and influence everyone of this world. He was a miracle worker. And like John the Baptist emperor, he, he had large crowds that followed him everywhere but eventually he got sideways with his own people the jewish leaders the jewish religious leaders they had him arrested and condemned and eventually he was crucified by pontius pilate i can see also in the crowd besides josephus i see senator Ta senator taxius and where i come from in the 21st century he is a famous historian of the jews and he writes all about this he tells this story, and he can confirm what I'm saying. He can confirm that Jesus of Nazareth suffered the most severe kind of punishment possible. He can also confirm that the fact that what we should have seen as an end when Jesus was killed was actually just the beginning. Because after Jesus was buried, he was buried for three days as the Jews measured their days. And after the Passover, the tomb was found empty. And at first glance, people thought it was grave robbers. But the, but the fact of the matter is, is Jesus was a very poor man. And he didn't have a lot, really didn't have anything. And so it wasn't the contents of the grave that was stolen. It was actually the body, they believed, because it was missing. They wouldn't have stole the body. Within days, there were rumors that Jesus had actually been seen in Jerusalem. It started with just a couple people, and then it was a, a couple dozens of people, and then it was hundreds of people that had seen him, and then just spread like wildfire that Jesus actually was still alive. Yes, the resurrection, it galvanized the courage of his followers and they spread the news that in fact Jesus had said when he was alive and he said it again after his resurrection that the kingdom of God has come. See, John the Baptist, he was preaching this, this gospel and it was saying the kingdom of God is near. Jesus steps onto the scene and says the kingdom of God, baby, it's here is right here a kingdom not of this world but a kingdom for this world and Jesus the resurrected rabbi is in fact the king and his followers declared that he was actually their lord his closest followers were even arrested and beaten and some of them emperor were even put to death but they were persistent and their confidence, it was convincing. Their confidence, it was contagious. They had actually seen, and they had meals with. They listened to this man talk 
the resurrected teacher, this rabbi, Jesus of Nazareth. Domitian, you know that even today as we speak, there are citizens and slaves and men and women and freedmen and visitors who are actually meeting all over the city in apartments and under trees and in gardens and by the river who actually worship this Jesus of Nazareth even today. In fact, for the next 230 years, you and the emperors that will come after you are going to flex every bit of power and strength that you have to stop this movement from moving. But you will fail. It won't work. This movement is so powerful that I, from the future, can tell you, but no matter what you do, no matter how hard you try, no matter who you kill, no matter what law you put in place, you can't stop it. Emperor Domitian, as impossible as it seems, and as impossible it must be for you to imagine, one day over that very gate that we entered into the Colosseum, the VIP gate, one day, there will hang an enormous cross there, an enormous wooden cross, and it won't represent the ruthlessness and the, that cross that's hanging that does today. But in the 21st century where I come from, that cross that's hanging there in the Colosseum one day will be hanging all around the city, and it will represent one thing, the love of Jesus Christ. The love, the mercy, the grace of Jesus Christ. See, today, the cross is violence. It's power. One day, that will change. Now, when I stop this speech there looking at the emperor, everyone is silent, speechless, because this is absolute. What I'm saying is absolutely impossible. This cannot possibly happen the cross a symbol of love all the temples destroyed throughout the city the priesthood disbanded no more animal sacrifices this is ridiculous jupiter replaced for a jewish rabbi from nazarene a jewish rabbi dead 50 years worshiped by the empire that executed him but before in your future, spawn, I continued, and I said, oh, great Domitian, as for you, in your future, you will be known primarily for your reign of terror. But you, Domitian, you'll be known as the emperor who threw huge, massive parties only lit by the burning bodies of Christians hanging on crosses. That's what you'll be known for. In fact, Domitian, you, along with every other emperor, will be reduced to just a paragraph or two in our modern-day history books, with one exception. And that exception is Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, his name will be referenced every single year in homes and places of worship all over the world. Not because he was an incredible Caesar or this awesome man, but because, as a footnote in the story of the birth of that Jewish Savior from Nazareth. Caesar Augustus, as a footnote in the story of the birth of the Jewish King, Jesus, whose words will be collected and distributed more widely than all the Roman emperors combined. As impossible as I'm sure this sounds to you, Domitian, Jesus of Nazareth will actually be the most influential and revered man who ever walked planet Earth. Think about this. Think about the year we're in. We're in 82 AD. This is impossible. No way. No way this can happen. 
as, and this Emperor Domitian, <laughs> this is the future of your glorious empire. Rome is not eternal, but the God who reigns, he is. It was his temple that your brother Titus destroyed. It was his son that your governor Pontius Pilate crucified. It was his sovereign purpose that your empire embraced and decided to advance. And then I sit down, mic drop maybe, I don't know. The whole place is silenced. This is unimaginable. It's impossible. Think about the year that we're in. This could not possibly happen. There is no way, no way this could possibly be true. So we sit there, everyone's silence. The Victorian guards probably got their hands on the sword just waiting for the symbol. Since just staring at me across the room. I head off. Emperor Domitian's just staring at me across the room. And all of a sudden, as he stares at me, he winks. And then a little half smile comes up on his face. And then a full smile. And then all of a sudden, he just burst out in laughter. He just starts laughing and slapping his knee. And since everybody knows what to do, you don't even know what was just said. So you just start laughing. Everybody's laughing. Emperor Domitian, finally, he raises his cup. We wonder what in the world about to toast. He raises his cup. He silences the crowd. And he says to the storyteller, brilliant, brilliant. You had me believing right up to the very end. Brilliant. And then he cues the musicians, and they begin to play, and the party resumes. He gets up off of his throne, and he walks over to our table, and he leans into our table, and he says, you have to come tomorrow night and join me again. You have to join me again tomorrow night. And tomorrow night, I want you to tell us the truth. I want you to tell us the real story. None of this crazy nonsense. But I want to, you to tell us the real empire, and for this, our eternal end. Not what was believed, but what actually happened was absolutely impossible to believe. What actually happened was impossible. No one could possibly dream up what happened. And, and even when I go back, and this morning as I was reading through this sermon, I cried and cried all morning just because I was thinking about how impossible it was going to be to keep this movement moving, this Jesus movement. It was illegal. It was everybody, if you get caught, they'll kill you. Eventually, you'd think that they would catch everybody. What was it about this movement that was so powerful, that was so unstoppable, that was so irresistible that they could not stamp it out? What was it about this movement, about this Jesus guy, that was so in, impossibly awesome that 2,000 years later, we're still celebrating Jesus. In the region of Caesarea Philippi, surrounded by a group of people with no future, no hope, other than simply surviving under the heel to the ladies and gentlemen, overtaxed, misled by religious leaders, Jesus said to the ladies and gentlemen that were following him, the, the apostles, the disciples, the large crowds that usually followed him, everywhere he went, he said to this, ladies and gentlemen, I will build my ecclesia, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Think about that. Think about how powerful. He says, I will build my ecclesia, my gathering, my congregation, my assembly, my people. I will do that. And the gates of what's often translated in our English Bible as hell, which is not hell. It's Hades, which is death. Hades will not overcome it. Hades, which is the realm of the dead, present dwelling place for all things deceased. And death, not my death, not your death, not, not John's death, not Matthew's death, not Paul's death, not Luke's death, not even death can stop what I'm about to start. Do you understand how powerful that is? Do you understand how awesome it is that you and I today get to play a part in this? This must have sounded so hollow and so thin 
so unbelievable standing out there in the blazing hot Syrian sun. But Jesus meant what he said. Not even the gates of death can stop what I'll start. Because what God began and what God has continued throughout the ministry of the life and death and the resurrection of Jesus is linear. God showed up in history with a plan. And because of that, we today have so much to look back on, so much to celebrate. We have so much to appreciate and to think that we're just a small part of this, what God is doing in our generation, what God began all those years ago against insurmountable odds. I count that as a privilege that I get to be a part of this story. And there are people 200 years from now, they're depending upon me to make sure that I get this story right. That I live this story, that I breathe this story, that I share this story, that I keep telling it like it happened yesterday. Made me want this process. It's what wakes me up in the morning. It's what keeps me going when I have bad days and bad times. It's what made me want this property so bad. It's what made me want to plant a church so bad. It's what made me want to have a little metal building in the middle of five acres. It's why it's so important that we, we bring things together. No one could have orchestrated this. But my friends, it happened. Senator Tactius, who was a famous historian, who was there in that time period, he wrote all about it. Josephus who Josephus' writings are some of my favorite writings ever because he tells so many, and neither one of these guys even wrote in the Bible. They're not even in the Bible. And it moved. There's a man named Jordan B. Peterson, and he has a book called 12 Rules for Life, and he says it really so perfectly. And Pastor Kevin and I, for the last seven weeks, we've been saying this over and over and over but the way he says it's so powerful. So I'll, just for a moment, I want to read an excerpt out of his book. He says, Christians achieve the well-nigh impossible. The Christian doctrine elevated the individual soul, placing the slave and master and commoner and nobleman alike on the same metaphysical footing, rendering them equal before God and the law. This implicit transcendent worth of each and every soul established itself against impossible odds. In fact, it is in fact nothing short of a miracle that the hierarchical slave-based societies of our ancestors reorganized themselves under the sway of an ethical religious Revelation, such that the ownership and the absolute domination of another person came to be viewed as wrong. And then what he says next is so powerful. One of the reasons I wanted to read this whole statement. He says, we forget that the opposite was self-evident throughout most of human history. In other words, throughout most of human history, what made right made perfect sense. Might made right. The one with the gold makes the rules. Owning another person was natural. Being able to enslave an entire population of people groups was natural. It was normal. It was the way of nature for generations all throughout human mankind. This was the way things were. It was self-evident. Why would anyone ever question this? But then Jesus shows up, and Jesus turns the world right side up. And we're stewards of this. He continues, and he says this. The society produced by Christianity was far less barbaric than the pagan, even the Roman ones it replaced. It objected to infanticide, to prostitution, to the principle that might means right. It insisted that women, what, were as valuable as men. And this, back then, was completely unheard of. But then Jesus showed up. It demanded that even society's enemies 
be regarded as human? Hmm. The church has missed that right there for a while. All of this was asking the impossible. And then Jordan Peterson wrote, but it happened. It was impossible, but it happened. And it happened around the teachings of one Jewish rabbi whose words should have never survived the dusty first century. Once upon a time, what was considered normal, what once upon a time, what we considered self-evident was impossible. Here's my concern, and this is, this is where I'm going this morning, is, is we have to take that, that knowledge, and we cannot take it for granted. I used to say this all the time, if you abuse it, you might lose it, you know, anything, any kind of talents. I always have believed that if you, if you abuse those things, you might lose those things. If you don't take care of them and steward them, you could lose that. And I believe that when it comes to stewarding the church, if we don't take care of it and, and, and stop abusing it, in generations we may not have that will be called church, great, great church, may not have it. Or what they have that will be called church or called religion or whatever will be so tainted and ugly and polluted and disgusting, no one will be a part of it. Think about it now. How many people that you know right now that don't want anything to do with church because it's nasty? It's political. It's hypocritical. It's fake. It's phony. It's, it's judgy. We continue down this road. Eventually, it'll just be unnecessary. But Jesus and, and the followers, the immediate followers of Jesus in the first century, when he was gone and it was impossible to believe and follow, they believed. And against all odds... The movement kept moving, and it got bigger, and it got bigger, and it got bigger. And you know what they didn't preach? They didn't preach the law. Paul says it best. He says, I preach Christ and him crucified. Christ and him crucified. Then Paul goes on and says, listen, I became all things to all people so that by all possible means I might heal, rescue, and restore some. I do whatever I got to do to heal, restore, and rescue some. What we need, if we want a great nation, what we need is a thriving church. To have a great nation, we have to embrace the message of Jesus, get back to the message of Jesus, the message that was so irresistible, so powerful, so awesome, so moving that people died spreading it. When you get a thriving church, that's how you get a great nation. And then Jesus, he, just, he defines great for us. Him and he's hanging out with all his disciples, and they, the disciples get into a little bit of an argument, and they start saying, Jesus, when you become the Messiah, when you become Lord, who, who, who's the greatest? Who, who's going to sit on your right? Who's going to sit on your left? And Jesus goes, listen, that's not the way it works in my kingdom. That's the way it works in your world. That's the way it works in your job. That's the way it works in your family. You got the might makes right. You know, the one with the gold makes the decisions and the rules. That's not the way it works in my kingdom. If you want to follow me, you got to follow me and do as I do. And even the Son of Man didn't come to be served, hello, his life, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. If you want to to follow me, then you got to follow me. you got to do as I do. Do as I did. And he says, and I came to serve. I came to serve. That's why being rich is kind of a big deal. That's why being generous in our communities is a big deal. Being generous in our church is a big foundation that has this type of DNA is a big deal. That's why starting a church and, and, and a foundation that has this type of DNA, the DNA that looks and sounds like and smells like Jesus, that's why it is important. It is a big deal because the vision of God is so much bigger than a religion, a denomination, a church, a church building. It's a DNA that is inside of you that has to come out of you and it has to to infect and touch every person that you come in contact with they should recognize it just like when John and 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 Peter come out of the uh uh when they get arrested and 
and they're sitting in front of the Sanhedrin, they walk away and they said, man, they took note that these men had been with Jesus. said Jesus. That just felt Jesus. It was in their DNA. It was who they were. It's got to be in our DNA. And I think Jesus said it best in Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, when he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. So when you start to blend in, we start to just go with the flow, and we just start to play church as normal. You just start to be kind of the casual Christian. When I was a kid, there was a, a Christian rock group. I don't know if you'd call them rock back then. It's, now I think about it, it's really like soft rock or whatever. They were called DeGarmo and Key. Anybody ever heard of DeGarmo and Key? Two of us? Thank you. Uh, they sang a song, and it was one of my favorite songs, and it really was like my anthem when I was growing up. And it says, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a casual Christian. I don't want to live, I don't want to live a lukewarm life. I want to let my light shine. And that's what Jesus is saying here. You can't just sit back and and go along for the ride because you were meant to be the salt of the earth. When you lose that passion, when you lose that drive, when you lose that fire, you're no good. You're no good to saying these words. They had no idea back then when Jesus was saying these words that they were the beginning, that they were the very beginning of this movement, this revolution that would change the world forever. See, we come to church on Sundays and we celebrate because of what they endured, what they actually did. The verse goes on and Jesus says, you are the light of the world. So let your light shine before others that they may see your righteousness. No. That they may see how holy you are. That they may see how much you fast and pray. No, he says that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. The you in this is is we, not me. Okay, it's us, you, we, we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We have to become contagious again. and We have to become irresistible again and attractive again. And, and G- people need to see Jesus as, as a good father, not a, this angry dad who's just looking for every excuse in the world to just rain terror on you and punish you. You better watch out. God's going to get you. God's going to get you. God's going to get you. Man, no. God's going to love you. God's going to love you. God's going to love you. Well, he did this. Well, God's still going to love you. We are stewards of the faith of our generation. And the question for you this morning is, what are you going to do with it? What are you going to do as a steward in this faith? Are you just going to take what you can get and just live with the fact that, you know, I'm good. I know enough. I'm fine. Just ride the sidelines and let it continue to go downhill because people were abusing it, what the church was intended to be in the first place. Or are we going to stand and make a difference? Because against all possible odds, against all odds, the church changed the world once. People moan and complain all the time. Obstacles today, I mean, look at the world right now. I hear people moan and complain all the time about how our world is just going downhill and our world is so bad. Listen, it's not. We just have social media. You just see it more. It's, it's actually better than it's ever been. It's just you just see it more, and so it spreads better. But the truth is we do have a fractured world. You know, it's always been fractured. It's always had its problems. We have a fractured government. We have broken families. We have broken people. We have broken marriages. We're, we're still living at the tail end of this global pandemic. And so much more that people are going through. But against all odds, this church, you, the ecclesia today, will be a part of changing the world back again. This message is so attractive. 
This message is so attractive to me. I find myself wanting to share it and talk about it all the time. I'll be working and we'll, I'll be talking to a customer at, at work or something. We'll just be sharing. And, and immediately we kind of get into, I always go into this, well, you know, I'm a pastor. And we start talking. And, of course, 90% of people that I deal with go, oh, yeah, I go to church. Or, oh, yeah, my dad's a pastor. Oh, yeah, my uncle's Everybody's a pastor and uncle's pastor whatever. So we get in these discussions. And they nine times out of ten, they end up telling me why they don't go to church anymore. And I love telling them, yeah, I wouldn't go to church for that either. That's, that's crappy. That's shady. But the good news is, that's not what church is about. It's about Jesus. And, and I end up getting to share these Jesus stories with people all the time. And it just oozes out because it's so awesome. It's so good. To reclaim the new that Jesus unleashed for the world. That's what being irresistible is all about. So let me charge you with this in closing with the words of Paul because Paul said it best in 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. He said, stand firm. Let nothing move you of the Lord. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor is not in vain. I was thinking, Paul didn't write that to me. He didn't write that to me. He was writing this to a group of people that against all odds, the movement was not going to be able to keep moving. They were arresting people left and right. They were arresting them and beating them and killing people left and right. If you got caught with a document, because there was no Bible, there was the law and the prophets, what we call the Old Testament. There's no New Testament. There's no Bible. But John had documented the resurrection. Matthew had documented And people would take pieces of that. Sometimes it was just a chapter. Sometimes it was just a few verses. And they would copy that and write it down. And they would live. They would literally meet and have church on this one verse over and over and over and over and over. Because that's all they had. That's how powerful this movement was. And I was thinking about it this morning. And when Paul writes this, he's talking to a group of people that there was no hope of a future you know, there's no hope that if you get caught with this piece of a document of John, you're going to be arrested. They're going to beat you because they're making examples of you. So you have to hide it good. And when you share the news, you got to share it with somebody that you trust because all they got to do is say one word and you're turned in. And so Paul wasn't writing this to me. I've got it easy. I live in a nation that I have freedom to worship. Nobody's going to bust in here and arrest me. I have that freedom. I can worship the way I want to worship. But when Paul writes this, they didn't have that. And he says, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord. Because he says this because you know that your labor is not in vain. We saw him. We ate with him. We talked with him. And if you'll keep and you'll stand firm and keep committed fully to the work of the Lord, some 2,000 years later, there's going to be people on some island that's going to be discovered later And they're still going to be telling this story. If you'll just stand firm now. Just stand firm. Work. And they did. And so as bad as we think we've got it now, I think Paul, if he were here today, he would say the same thing. Listen, I'll tell you, just like I told the church back in 42 AD, stand firm. I wrote this to a little church in, in in Corinth. And I said, stand firm. Stay committed fully to the work of the Lord. Because you know your labor is not vain. You're not working for nothing. It's going to keep going and going and going. If you'll stay committed 
So my message to you this morning is stand firm. Stand firm with everything that's going on around us, whether you think it's bad or it's not that bad, whether you think it's getting worse or it's getting better, it doesn't matter. The message is still the same. Stand firm. Because there is a future generation, and you can, you can be naive if you want, and you can think that it's just always going to be. 200 years from now, there's always going to be a church. It's always going to be. What's now known as the Bible Belt may not exist one day. It may be difficult to find a church one day. I don't know. But you know what I do know? That I need to heed the words of Paul and I need to stand firm so that my labor is not in vain, so that people, generations from now, that my kids, 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 kids still hear the gospel and understand the message of Christ because it's worth it. Come on, somebody. It's worth it. Somebody say a big amen. Stand up this morning with me. Jesus' final message with the disciples was what we, we say it all the time. He says, listen, guys, this last command I give to you, that you love one another the way that I love you. And by this, everyone will know you're in the club. You're a part of the group. You're a part of the movement. It's never going to stop moving. Not even death will stop it. Father, Jesus, we just, even as I just share this over and over, I, I'm blown away every time. My mind is so boggled all the time at how powerful powerful your movement has always been and I, I apologize that even me as 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 a believer growing up even me at times got way off the message I made the message everything else in the Bible and I I got so far away sometimes from Jesus I made it about everything else but God I pray that you give me influence that you give us as a church influence and opportunity to bring the message back to you. The good news, the gospel, back to you, Jesus. That people will see it on our face, that they'll hear it in our talk. They'll see it in our reactions to the world around us. God, and I, I say thank you so much for those Back in AD 82, 83, to 230, to 200, to 397, when finally the Council of Carthage gathered together to canonize the scriptures. It was those people in that meantime that kept the movement alive. And I thank you so much, God for the power that you gave them, for the hope that you gave them. Father, we just pray again that you duplicate that in us, that you duplicate that hope and that faith in us, Jesus. We thank you for that. In Jesus' name we pray.